This is episode 322 with strength coach Keith Muller about how and why your foot moves the way that it does and why that's so important to our performance and injury risk as runners. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and the goal of this show, strengthrunning.com, and our YouTube channel is to help you better understand the process of improvement. Because when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. If you're new here, welcome. I'm the head coach of Strength Running, formerly a 239 marathoner, and a monthly columnist for Trail Runner Magazine. On this podcast, I share my insights on the sport and speak with the world's smartest subject matter experts to help you improve. I'm happy to connect anytime, so feel free to email me or send me a message on Instagram or YouTube. I'd love to thank our partners who support the show, and they're offering you some great discounts, which I hope you'll take advantage of. All of these companies offer products and services that I use on a near daily basis. First, don't sleep on Lagoon Sleep or maybe you should. Either way, they make the most comfortable pillow I've ever tried. And since we all know that sleep is the number one recovery tool that you have at your disposal, I hope we all take it a little bit more seriously. Now, I went on their website and took their sleep quiz. It only takes about two minutes and you can take yours at lagoonsleep.com slash strength running. And I was paired with their Fox pillow and I'm just loving it. You can add or remove fill to get your alignment and pillow thickness just right. And it's just a great way to optimize the most important thing you can do to become a better runner that isn't training, sleep. Take your rest and recovery to the next level with Lagoon and get 15% off your purchase with code STRENGTHRUNNING at lagoonsleep.com slash strengthrunning. Next is Element, a delicious, sugar-free, high-sodium electrolyte mix. I love this stuff because it's perfect for endurance runners who are sweating a lot, drinking a lot of water, and because of that, can be susceptible to electrolyte imbalances. My favorite flavor is watermelon, but citrus salt is also right up there. Now, you didn't hear it from me, but these can also be used to make a very tasty sugar-free margarita or the next morning to help you feel better if you've had too many of those margaritas. Now, electrolytes play a key role in helping you avoid dehydration, dizziness, cramps, and tiredness, especially after long runs and workouts. And I'm heartened to know that Element is used by our military, law enforcement, professional sports teams, and they're the official hydration partner of Team USA Weightlifting. Get your free sample pack with any purchase at drinklmnt.com strengthrunning, and they'll let you try every flavor. That's drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning for your free sample pack. Next is Prevenex, the only supplement company I trust. With third-party testing of ingredients and finished products, plus donations to kids in need, Prevenex is voluntarily putting themselves under more scrutiny and holding themselves to higher standards. Create some health for yourself at prevenex.com with code JASON15 for 15% off. You're going to love their Joint Health Plus product because it actually works. If you have any issues with your ankles, knees, or hips, know that Joint Health Plus reduces joint pain and improves how you feel with clinical double-blinded studies to prove it. Stay tuned until after the show, and I'm going to share some amazing testimonials from our other listeners. 
Try it now at Prevenex.com and use code Jason15 for 15% off your purchase. My guest today is the founder of Higher Ground Athletics in Boulder, Colorado, Keith Muller. I met Keith a few months ago in a group run, and <laughs> before I knew it, we were talking about weighted single-leg isometric movements, blood flow restriction training, and the endurance of our diaphragms. I realized I was geeking out with a kindred soul on the finer aspects of training theory and performance. Keith is a self-described working-class coach, without any formal background as an athlete or an academic, but he's worked with nearly every type of athlete imaginable, from group-class moms, five-time state champion cross-country teams, weekend warrior runners, and those in pain who are trying to reclaim their physicality. He has a very holistic view of endurance training and really considers himself more of a problem solver for endurance athletes. He does that by exposing them to a broad view of the full landscape of trainable qualities that you can consider so that you're as prepared as possible for the mechanical and metabolic demands of running. Our conversation today focuses on the movement of the foot, pronation, supination, movement patterns and options, and how we can think more productively about using our arch as a spring to improve our economy, injury resilience, and finish times. And now, without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Keith Muller. I've always wanted to do an episode on pronation. I haven't yet out of the 320 plus episodes that I've done so far. So it's about time. And, you know, especially because so much about what we know about pronation has changed recently, I, I think in the last 10 years or so. Um, you know, I remember when pronation was, was just considered a bad thing. You know, it was like a four letter word pronation <laughs> and it's certainly not right. Yeah, I agree. Um, when I just getting out of school, spent a very short amount of time in a running shoe store, I wasn't really cut out for retail, but you know, motion control was the thing. And that was only just under 10 years ago. Yeah. And, and now I don't even think too many companies make motion control shoes. You know, when I started running back in the late nineties, boy, that makes me seem really old that those were all the rage and, you know, motion control shoes were like a third of the market because we only had motion control stability and neutral shoes. And now there's all these different varieties and there's almost like weird types of shoes that are like partly maximalist and partly minimalist. And so now we've, we've really gotten to the other side of this. Um, maybe we can start just like super general and just talk about our terms first, you know, pronation. When we say that word, what do you think about? How do you define that? Sure. So pronation is one half of a shape change that occurs in the bones of the midfoot. So we can't talk about pronation without understanding supination. Uh, and these terms like the Latin roots would be prone, would be towards the floor, kind of like turning downwards, supine would be facing up. And it's the same at your forearm or your wrist, turning the palm of your hand up is supination, turning the palm of your hand down is pronation. It's a little bit trickier since the foot doesn't actually flip upside down or roll down to the floor, but the direction of motion is the same. So for supination and pronation, this is a coupling of the rotational motion between the bones of the midfoot, your tarsal bones below your ankle, and the bones of your shin, your tibia and fibula. Everyone's got those little knobs on the inside and outside of their ankle, those uh, medial and lateral malleolus, I think they're called. I'm definitely not an anatomy expert, but they guide 
when they rotate either internally or externally, they'll guide the bones of the midfoot to do the same. And what that does in interaction with the ground, maybe not if our foot is just floating in the air, but because of the interaction with the ground, that's going to drive a shape change in the entire foot. So pronation could be understood to be a flattening and collapsing of the arch towards the floor. We could also just think of it as internal rotation of the foot since it's coupled with IR up above in the shin and to even greater extent the hip. Um, And then supination could be understood to be external rotation of the foot, which is going to pop that arch up and make your foot nice and rigid. Now, pronation and supination are the thing that make the human foot unique within the animal kingdom. It's on the list of things that makes you fundamentally human and homo sapiens, at least anatomically, right? So that ability to shape change and have a foot that can transfer from a rigid lever for propulsion to a mobile adapter that can conform to the ground and absorb impact and store elastic energy. That's what makes the human foot very special. Wow. So does that mean no other primate has feet like ours that can change the shape like we do? My understanding is they have a lot of the same anatomy along with a lot of the same bones, but the function is very different and there's not that, that uh, collapsing and uh, popping back up that change from supination to pronation. People should check out great book, Understanding the Human Foot, James Earls, I think is his name. Understanding the Human Foot is what you should Google, but it goes in in depth of all that uh, evolutionary line of thinking. Oh, that's fascinating. You know, I, I also love this idea of, of thinking about these movements, supination, pronation, more as in the the shape changing of the foot, because this this gives us a more well-rounded, holistic view of the natural movement patterns that our foot has to experience when we're running. Can you talk a little bit about this idea of, of just shape change and, and how if we're only thinking about pronation, we probably are thinking about this a little bit too two-dimensionally? Sure. I think it's clarifying to think in movement, in terms of movement in general, you can't go where you already are. So this is why, you know, somebody who presents with a flat foot and just lives in pronation, that's why that can be so troublesome. Or if you have a very high rigid arch like I used to before I learned to really drive drive pronation and get the most out of my midfoot, um, I, I had very high arches. Both of those situations, by being stuck in one position and not understanding how to access the other, you really lose the benefits of both because it's the transition between the two where the magic is, right? It is pronating and supinating that give the foot that that magic function of really locking or conforming to terrain and absorbing impact, just like a spring, right? If a spring were all already fully compressed or already fully um, expanded, there's not really any function to both of those. It's the transition between the two states where we get energy. I think this is a fundamentally new way of thinking about how the foot is supposed to move for a lot of runners, um, because you know, usually we just think about our foot rolls inward, that's pronation, and our foot can roll outward, that's supination. You don't want too much of either. But I think what I'm understanding is that this entire movement pattern is a good thing because it allows us not only to, what, absorb force, but also, you know, actually use our feet the way that they're intended. You know, you mentioned not having these rigid levers. And and I think that's where runners can maybe run into a lot of issues because if they're thinking about their feet as these rigid levers, 
that's maybe where a lot of injury problems are are, are going to come into play because your foot needs to move when you're running. And especially if you're running a lot or if you're running very fast, if you're trying to maybe over-index for stability the way that we've been taught as runners, that could present some issues. Yeah, and you don't need to take my word for it. I mean, there are 26 bones in each foot, and I think it's 33 articulations between them, right? Each of those bones touches at least one other bone. And in the body, it should be pretty simple to understand that if you have an articulation, a joint where two bones can move relative to each other, that took a long time for that to evolve. And it's probably pretty important for there to be motion between those two bones on a regular basis, every day, all day, right? Especially when we talk about something like the foot that we're using to walk around, that that motion is probably pretty fundamental. Otherwise, there wouldn't be those bones there and we'd have chimp feet or hooves or whatever it might be. Not, <laughs> not to be like, that's a naturalistic fallacy to assume that what is is what ought. But I think that humanity has arrived at a pretty interesting um, solution for for how to get around. It's part of how we uh, got to the point where we could walk upright very efficiently and run, of course. Now, do you use the term overpronation? Because this is something that I have tried very hard to to strike from my vocabulary. Yeah, I certainly don't use that term. It's not the level at which I work with people either. Like I'm not really a run coach. I do that for a few people. I mostly just try to be a problem solver for endurance athletes in the gym. And in the gym, we're trying to create as many options for moving as possible rather than constraining those options or trying to lump into a small list of the preferred ways to move. It's that expansion rather than constraining that really seems to make people bulletproof if that's our goal. I've had to think of what overpronation might even mean. Um, and I think, <laughs> I think that's very telling. Keith. I think what where I arrive at is that it's when pronation stops being pronation, but bleeds into other joints, right? So pronation is motion of the midfoot, the tarsal bones below your ankle, right? So if that runs out and you collapse all the way into the floor, but the domino effect keeps going and you have motion in the actual ankle, that would be ankle eversion. And then you have continued tibial internal rotation. Then you have the knee continuing to roll into the point where it might become what some people will call valgus, the knee going in too far. When that rolls up the chain and then can impart force on all those tissues up there, that could be termed overpronation, kind of a sloppy a sloppy running stride. And if you have tissue somewhere along that domino effect that doesn't have the load bearing capacity for it, then you have that like telltale consequence of being an overpronator, knee pain, whatever that might be, ankle issues. You know, you said something earlier that, that I want to focus on a little bit. It was very interesting. You know, you said how pronation requires rotation and the rotation isn't just in the foot, you know, the pronation part of it is in the foot. But if you think about the entire body, there's rotation going on in other areas as well. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, this idea of, of rotation and describe that? Sure. Um, the easiest thing to say, I guess you have to take my word for it the same way I've taken the word of people a lot smarter than me that have educated me about movement. Rotation is part of every everything. There's a spiral sort of motion to, to, to any motion, especially it's, it's a lot easier to understand for something like the hip um, that has a ton of degrees of freedom versus something more complicated like the foot because the hip is easy to understand as sort of like that action figure uh, ball and socket joint, right? 
it turns out that any motion that you might think of for the hip, flexion, extension, abduction, adduction, those things that we might describe as being a linear travel of the bones, those are coupled with rotation. And in fact, you need some rotation to be able to access end range for whatever that might be. So the people that have taught me the most about movement uh, taught me to prioritize rotation as a way to make sure that there's as much space as possible in those articulations. And I believe it, especially in the foot, because learning to pronate and learning to collapse my arch is what finally freed up my ankle dorsiflexion that I had been working on to no avail for years and years and years. It was by accessing that torque piece of things that I sort of freed things up. But um, to answer your question, like rotation is kind of the hidden language of movement. And if you learn to like see it when it's happening, see it when it's not happening and train it, there's a lot of really good stuff that comes onto the table for you. Yeah. And you posted something very, uh, I think helpful on Instagram the other day. It was, it was like a picture of what I think was your foot as you were doing this exercise, but you would drew in all of these arrows showing where the forces were going during this midfoot stance that you were in. And I think it was really instructive because so many parts of your foot are actually kind of moving in different ways. And it really goes to show that you might see someone running straight ahead, but there's all these forces at work on the athlete that are, you know, causing rotation that are causing forces to, to be moving laterally. And, and I think part of our job as a runner is to, to borrow a phrase from a former podcast guest is to steer the ship and make sure that our body is moving in the way that we want it to, um, and, and not with these, you know, ineffective movement patterns. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about how we might get this rotation piece wrong if, if we're focusing on it too much, or it may be the opposite. If we're not focusing on it enough, if we don't think there should be any rotation and maybe we're, we're trying to be almost too stable, what kind of problems can runners get into with those kinds of ideas? Yeah, I think for the foot, that rotation, because it, it collapses the arch and lets you roll through is one of the ways that you sort of airbag into a stride and absorb absorb is not the right word, dissipate some of the energy of ground contact, right? Whereas if you imagine jumping and landing with your knees locked, that's probably not so good, right? Because you're making all that force dissipate right through the joints of your knee rather than the soft tissues, right? So that pliability in the foot is one of the ways that we uh, get that uh, absorbing. So you, And shoes do this for us as well, right? Shoes help us dissipate a lot of the impact of ground forces and a, a really hard aggressive shoe or a, a weightlifting shoe that has a very thick rubber sole or a wooden sole versus being barefoot versus being in a, I guess a hoka or something like that are all going to feel very different in how they dissipate things. But I think I'm getting away from your question. Can you try to reiterate it for me? Yeah. I think I'm just asking more about this, this rotation piece. I, I guess I'm curious why there's any rotation. And it seems like the main purpose of it is to absorb force and one of the reasons why we do that, and, and you just were discussing this, is almost to absorb all that force because we don't want it just going through our connective tissues and our joints. We want it to use the soft tissue. And, and there's also this idea that it's not just there to absorb force and sort of keep us healthy so we're not just banging our legs constantly with every stride, but it's also there to improve our performance, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, something that's really interesting 
internal rotation. So imagine your femur rolling towards the inside of your body. That could involve your knee rolling in, which is a very fraught concept for a lot of people because of this idea of knee valgus. Um, but just imagine it rolling in a little bit. If your knee's going forward and kind of rolling in right over your big toe, right? That internal rotation that will guide pronation and drive pressure into the ground, internal rotation can be understood to be a downward force into the floor. So in addition to hip extension, just, you know, pressing into the ground, that rolling pressure inward helps us drive more force into the ground. And you see this outside of running too. You see um, anybody who is really good at a jump shot, if you look up Michael Jordan or somebody and see them setting up for a jump shot, they hit what you could call the triangle, right? Their knees roll in a little bit. And you could take this picture of them with their shins and their feet kind of forming a triangle. That is loading the arch of the foot for the jump that they're about to take. And in clinical spaces and gym spaces, it's really common to try to ask people to keep their knee directly over the middle of their foot. But it doesn't seem like that's the real secret sauce for alignment with the knee, helping the knee find that inside edge of the foot and drive pressure into, into the inside edge of the foot is how we drive a ton of force into the ground. And in my experience in the gym, it's kind of the secret for finding uh, glutes the way that most people want to. I have a question for you. Does this podcast go on YouTube like the video? Uh, some clips will for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I can like take my sock off and kind of show a little bit of arch of the foot stuff if you want me to. Yeah. So let's make sure this part's a clip. So folks will have to come to YouTube and see this. So there are two easy ways that you can take a look at your ability to kind of pronate and find that inside edge of your foot. I'm just going to make sure you can see me. If I take my sock off, a sock is like a really helpful cue actually to help you sense the floor by putting that under your arch. So if I take my sock off, fold it in half so it's got a little bit of body to it, and put it right under the arch of my foot, I've now got this thing to feel. If I just send my knee forward and slightly in over my big toe, you can see that my foot lengthens out and the pressure rolls in towards that spot. So what I'd invite people to do at home is just stand like this with pressure rolled onto that sock and finding the inside edge of your foot. Toes are nice and quiet. We're not gripping with the toes. We're pushing our weight forward over our foot. And very importantly, the heel stays heavy. It's that interaction with the ground that helps you pronate. If I were to rise my heel up off the floor, then all of a sudden I've kind of lost some of that. So just hang out there. And what you should feel is the arch of your foot light up, soleus light up that becomes your Achilles tendon, maybe the inside of your shin, because all that stuff is getting lengthened as you sort of gas pedal into the floor. Another easy way to just check for pronation would be to stand with your feet right underneath your shoulders and see if this motion actually couples with the motion of the shin or not. So I'm, you, you can't see my upper body, but I am turning to my right right now and the right arch pops up and the left one collapses. And as I turn to my left, my right arch collapses, the left pops up because me turning up in the hips there's this coupling of rotation all the way through down to the floor. So this is the easiest way to kind of check, hey, is that mechanism intact in my foot? Does my foot change shape at the most basic level? Yes or no? And then you kind of go from there. Now, the idea, Keith, is that you do want your foot to change shape, even when you're just doing something like you were just doing, which is just 
shifting your shoulders from one side to the other. So even something as simple as that with that upper body movement, you're still going to see your foot change shape. Yeah, just small semantic thing that it's not the upper body movement that matters, it's the pelvis moving. So I'm thinking about like my belly button turning left and right, and the pelvis moving is going to bring the femur along with it, which is going to bring the fibia, fibula and tibia along with it, which is going to bring the bones of the midfoot. They're coupled all the way down to the ground, if that makes sense. Got it. Okay. But yeah, that motion, your, your foot should be moving. It's a bag of bones and it should be moving all over the place. What's really interesting is people, you know, if we think about like barefoot running, barefoot shoes, minimal shoes, it's a noble idea because having, you know, less between you and the ground is probably a really good thing. And I try to wear zero drop shoes as much as I can. I try to be barefoot as much as I can. But the big thing that's not natural in that equation is the flat ground, this flat, perfectly manicured surface. It's really like having variation in terrain that gets those bones to move a ton. So walking in grass or like right outside our apartment, we've got a bunch of rocks that are just part of the landscaping. And I go walk out on those rocks and kind of get, you can see your foot kind of conform to all that stuff and really get the bones moving. It's sort of a free massage. <laughs> Definitely an HOA violation, but maybe that's yeah, a topic maybe. for another. <laughs> or you could just get one of those uh, trigger point balls or something like that and just try to drive all that stuff. And you can feel how much pliability there is in the, in the foot. Yeah, I'm going to put a pin on barefoot running and minimalist shoes. I want to talk a little bit about that soon. Let's first talk about, you know, this very required motion of the arch, which is a slight collapsing of it. Now, you've talked about uh, the arch as a spring. Can can you talk a little bit more about that um, and, and the fact that, you know, this is an essential movement pattern of the arch and how it's important not only to keep you healthy, but also to make sure that you can run as fast as you possibly can when it comes to a race situation. Sure. We're talking pronation being mostly this motion of bones, but what's interesting about bones in living people is that they have muscles and tendons and ligaments attached. You have all of these different types of tissues. So you have the contractile tissue, which we call muscle. Its job is to contract, to pull bones closer together or allow them to be pulled further apart. Then you have tendons, which attach muscle to bone. It's technically just a continuation of muscle. And then you have ligaments, which will not stretch very much and they'll attach bone to bone, right? So when these bones move, especially through pronation, where these bones are getting further apart, you might've seen when I showed you on the ground, or if you take a look at some pronation stuff on my Instagram, you'll see that the heel and the forefoot get further apart longitudinally, but they also roll away from each other to allow your arch to collapse and your navicular bone to kind of pop through your foot. So because the foot is expanding and getting longer and bigger and flattening onto the ground rather than compressing, the space between those bones is opening up and the tissues that connect them are being lengthened and loaded. And if those tissues, some of them are able to actually stretch a little bit and store elastic energy like a rubber band or a spring, then that energy is going to be returned when everything shortens again, as long as you don't spend too much time on the ground. And that's why the you know, sort of stretch shortening nature of running is so important. That elastic energy storage is free energy that you don't have to create ATP in order to, in order to use. So that, that kind of passive action is really important for run performance and just, um, mitigating the amount of impact you have to deal with to get all your miles. 
Yeah. And for anyone who's interested in just getting a better running economy, working on your efficiency, a big part of that is this issue, this issue of, you know, are you using this free energy that uh, is provided to you if you're running properly and, and using your legs almost as, you know, little mini pogo sticks? You know, everyone recognizes that as being super important and everyone recognizes that an enormous part of that comes from the foot and the Achilles tendon, right? The lower leg is has evolved for us to be pretty springy, right? And, you know, as somebody that designs training for people and makes training decisions for people, it's always frustrating for me to see that people jump right to specificity of saying, well, I want to get bouncier. I want to get better at elastic energy storage. So I'm just going to start doing more plyos, right? And that can work if you have the fundamental capacity to turn more jumping into better jumping. But most people would benefit from making sure that the bones that the rubber bands attach to can move a lot to stretch the rubber bands and then do a lot of isometric and eccentric work to make those rubber bands as thick as possible, then layer jumping on top of it. Um, So there's kind of this stepwise process or a a progression would be the term to, to sort of get there from our assumption that, oh, plyometrics are pretty important to running to making use of them. It can be a little more complicated than some people, uh, often make it. Yeah. You know, my personal stance on plyometrics is that I think they're fantastic, but I also recognize that they're very advanced and they have a high degree of technical proficiency required and the injury risk can be high if they're done improperly or if the volume of them is pretty high. So in my sort of coaching communication, I very rarely discuss plyometrics because I feel like it's a minefield. And now I feel like I have this opportunity to sort of discuss this progression of, okay, if you wanted to become a more springy runner, improve your running economy and actually use your muscles and connective tissues the way that they're supposed to be, plyometrics are a good idea, but how do we get there? So maybe we can take a little bit of time and just talk about that progression and you know, what a runner might want to do first before they get into, okay, I'm going to do 50 box jumps today or something like that. Sure. The the way I think about tendons, which are going to be that elastic energy storage mechanism for the most part, I think there's, you know, some that comes from fascia, but fascia is a really hard thing to understand and discuss, much less try to train um, if it's even possible. So if we think about, you know, directing things towards ligaments you know, there's the bouncy stuff, but I think about a contraction diet for, I I misspoke when I said ligaments, I meant tendons. I think about a contraction diet for tendons. Like if you're running and all you're doing is this bouncy, low level stretch shortening over and over and over again, maybe higher level if you're running fast within a week, like you should, then we have to make sure we balance that out, balance that diet out with slow heavy tension because that is the signal that tendons really require in order to maintain their thickness, maintain their cross-sectional area and stay nice and durable. And we see this often in the gym, people come in with Achilles tendinopathy or patellar tendinopathy type of things. Um, Things get better really quickly when you give them lots of time under low, moderate tension to balance out the bouncy stuff that they've done. So that's where we start is holds that are one to three minutes in length, and you get shorter and heavier over time. And then there's a position consideration for that. You're going to get the most bang for your buck in really lengthened positions, but middling positions are really good too. And you can uh, focus on like 
the positions of mid stance uh, as well and run specific positions if you want to. But uh, isometrics, that's a whole, we could have a whole podcast about isometrics. Yeah, we sure could. And I think anybody who's had Achilles tendinopathy and used the kind of classic eccentric heel drop technique to help rehabilitate that is familiar with this idea that to rebuild that tendon, you need eccentric heel drops. And what are those? It's basically a low to moderate, slow tension of that tendon. Uh, and, and you do a fairly high volume of those to, to get that stimulus. And, and I think that's just a helpful way of conceptualizing this idea that a lot of time under load, gradually working to heavier loads under less time, of course, is this really effective way at building the strength of your tendons so that they can actually handle the plyometrics, right? Like that's the goal. We're sort of building this foundation. It's almost like your foundation of easy mileage before you go start doing some hard workouts. Yeah. I was about to say the same thing. We swap a few words out of that sentence and it's the same as if we're talking about run periodization, right? You need to have long and slow, short and fast everywhere in between, right? And so that's true of range of ranges of motion. We want to explore every little bit of it and train everything. That's true of contraction types. That's true of loading. Like that seems to be the magic is to train everything and try to get away from the specificity of running to the very, very general uh, from an anatomical and tissue specific perspective. And then you can come back to running specificity later with all this general capacity that you can kind of bridge to running. Yeah. And I love this. This is kind of funny. Like I, I'm the running coach and I just love getting specific on how runners can actually build the real race specific fitness they need to accomplish their goals. And I love the way you described yourself earlier where you're like, I'm a problem solver for runners in the gym. You are all about building the capacity to be able to do the things that I want runners to do. And I think that's such a, a great, almost like team partnership that folks like us can have. Yeah, I think we've got this really unfortunate division where the training for the mechanical demands of of running, of endurance sports, and training for the metabolic demands of endurance sports are viewed as very separately, and those camps don't talk to each other. And run coaches and runners make the assumption that their weekly mileage and their volume and frequency and intensity is enough to take care of all the mechanical stuff. But it's clear that there's an archetype of athlete for whom that's not true. And it's the people who get injured, right? Where their metabolic fitness is outpacing the progression of their mechanical capacity, right? So they can't handle the training volume that's required for them to get fitter metabolically. But if we tie these things together as one, and say, hey, they, they're not so different and they need to be trained appropriately. Like maybe you can use your long run to get a lot of uh, beneficial impact and wear and tear, but you might need to get more granular the same way you get specific with your run prep. You might need to get more granular in the gym. And uh, for a lot of people, that specificity and that level of detail may just be required if they want to keep progressing. Yeah, that, that's so true because, you know, ultimately we all want to do the fancy stuff that looks impressive on Strava, you know, the long runs, the fun trail runs and all that. But we ultimately need to make sure that we actually have the foundational fitness that will allow us to do that. And, you know, I've become more and more interested in this idea of capacity building training over time. And it's really the question that what can I do that will enable me to do more in the future? 
not necessarily what's going to make me run a faster half marathon in six weeks, but how can I do training today that will make me able to do even more training in the future? And, and I think this podcast is one where this kind of stuff is really important because um, it's it's that capacity building stuff, but it's it's on the opposite end of the spectrum that I usually focus on. You know, on the running side, it's easy mileage. You know, we can certainly talk about some strength training as capacity building, but, you know, understanding high tension under load and isometric holds as a precursor to plyometrics is usually not how runners think about training. And because of that, I think it's even more valuable. Yeah, we've been taught to, whether we think about it this way or not, we've been taught to think very specifically. And it's true that specificity is probably one of the most important principles for training, right? If you don't understand specificity, then you'll never be able to answer the question of why Jonas Vingago, who just won the Tour de France, can't run a really fast marathon, right? There's a difference between riding a bike and running, and that can be understood you know, in the differences between the two, right? So training for one won't prepare you one-to-one for the other. Same way training for a marathon won't prepare you one-to-one for the 800 and the 1500, right? There's a specificity principle there. But if specificity was the only thing that mattered, then you could get really good at your chosen distance, let's say a 5K, by going out and running a 5K for time every other day. But that's not how it works, right? You have to actually train. You have to separate out these variables and these ingredients to your performance, isolate them as best you can to make sure that you're actually stimulating them, right? So the long run stimulates the just general aerobic engine, the ability to just slowly empty that glycogen tank, things like that. And then maximal oxygen consumption gets trained at the other end of the spectrum, turnover, things like that. You're just picking those variables apart and training a few of them at a time rather than all at once. And I view the gym as a place to do exactly that, right? To tease apart very specific things if we need to, bring them back into the general if we need to, and just, you know, use that toolkit over and over and over again. Keith, I'm discovering that we could probably have a three hour conversation on the philosophy of training, but let, let's get a little first time. <laughs> I know we got into it on a group run. I think it was global running day where we met in person and, and we're talking a lot about this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about some specific things that we can work on that are going to help our foot's movement patterns. So can we talk about two, two types of runners that might be on either end of the spectrum? The runner who, like you mentioned earlier, has flat feet, they are just living in pronation. And then the runner that has very high arches that, you know, is almost in this constant state of supination that doesn't have a lot of movement in their foot. What would you work on with these two runners in the gym so that you could hopefully ensure that they have a proper range of motion when they go out running? Sure. If I have somebody in the gym, uh, we're going to do that same test that I just showed a, a few minutes ago of, is that coupling mechanism intact? And if that's there, if you can pop your arch up and collapse it down to the floor, even slightly you're good. It doesn't matter whether your arch lives on the ground or lives up in the air or somewhere in between. Like that, you know, for lack of a better term, like resting posture of the foot doesn't matter too much. What matters is being able to get to the extremes. And if you can do that, then you can start 
getting to them more often, driving more attention, asking for even more range of motion, asking for even more force in those positions. And then you'll just expand and be able to create pretty, pretty significant shape changes in your foot. Like I've been able to develop my foot to be able to over time. Um, so we look at that and then from there, it's hard to talk specifically, but I would point people toward that testing mechanism and then spend time in each one. I kind of showed that position of driving force into a sock is a good place to start. I've got some supination ISOs on YouTube. Uh, someone could message me on Instagram or email me and I'll, I'll point them in the right direction because I'm not sure exactly what to Google, uh, but you can kind of find those. And then it really starts with positional things. Motion is really tricky, right? So if you're trying to adopt a position and get really strong in a position, it's best to do it isometrically to start, at least in my opinion. So you're just finding these holds where you have really good control and you're in the exact position you want to be in and you just let that cook. You know, uh, Keith, a couple months ago, I went to this weekend conference for running mechanics and injury prevention. It was hosted by uh, Jay DeSherry and uh, another physical therapist. And it was funny because I was the only running coach there. It was all physical therapists. So I was a little bit of fish out of water there. Um, but one of the things that they talked about was the fact that, um, you really need to make sure that when your foot is moving, you can go through the entire range of motion. And it, that that's true even when you're experiencing some fatigue. And so one of the tests that I actually did in front of the entire group myself, which is, which is almost like my biggest fear. It's not public speaking. It's showing off my poor biomechanics in front of a bunch of physical therapists. <laughs> but so I was doing these single leg calf raises and I do have a weak side. My left side is weaker than my right. It doesn't move as well. And when I got tired, it's like my foot position when I was trying to do this single leg calf raise just completely fell apart. And it was very clear that I was fatigued and I stopped moving the way that I should. Is this also a test that can show how your lower leg is going to be moving under high levels of fatigue? In other words, is this valuable information to you as uh, a strength coach for runners? It's really tricky to see what changes under fatigue. I'm really wary of movement assessments in general. Um, when we when we put a lot of pieces together, like getting somebody to do a named exercise, like a single leg calf raise, I try to really live in just the ranges of motion that an articulation has and somebody's ability to own the two extremes and, and the positions in between. Um, it's really tricky to correlate something like a single leg calf raise to any specific type of breakdown mechanically under fatigue when running or injury risk right? So I, I tend to not go there. I tend to not like hunt for those types of things and just say, hey, if taking pronation and supination as an example, like because of what pronation and supination allows us in terms of being able to access fully shortened and lengthened positions for the arch of the foot, soleus, and post-tib, if we use that to get lots of tension in fully shortened positions and fully lengthened positions. We can trust that as our North star that we'll be creating the most thick durable tissue as possible. You bring that to running and that's going to translate to really good uh, fatigue resistance, at least in terms of the tissue load bearing capacity piece of it. Of course, there's an enormous neurological and coordination component to resisting fatigue. For sure. Uh, so am I understanding it right that as long as someone can 
demonstrate strength and proper movement patterns at both ends of the movement spectrum, then you're pretty comfortable with them kind of going out and running. And, and if, if they're building strength at those ends of the spectrum, then you're happy. Yeah, we're trying to fill the gaps that running doesn't give you and reinforce the things that running really, really specifically demands, right? I really try not to make the mistake of mimicking running in the gym or trying to make somebody faster in the gym. From my perspective, what we're doing in the gym is trying to build a body that can turn running into run fitness as smoothly and quickly as possible, right? And I think it's a subtle difference between what a lot of people do in the gym, but I think it, it makes all the difference in the world. Um, and so we, we rely on the anatomy for that. If so if, we, if we're saying we don't care about run-specific positions and mimicking running that much, we care about just options, then I'm interested in training all the options that articulations have, and those are well understood by anatomists and physiologists, right? We know just dictated by the structure of the hip what a human hip should be able to do. So our job is to just train everything within that confinement. So we're not doing arm swings with a two pound weight with you in the gym. That's not one of the things. Not me, not anymore. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk a little bit more about barefoot running and minimalist shoes. Uh, I, I think I have taken every position one might take on this topic since, you know, 2008, uh, used to be really into minimalist shoes. Now I'm not against them, but I just view them as training tools. Uh, and I think they can be helpful in certain ways, but they're not a panacea. I do think they can help runners get a little bit more in touch with their body and how it moves and how it interacts with the ground through some barefoot running. But I'm curious, you know, you mentioned this a little bit and I said, we were going to come back to it, but how can barefoot running or even just running in, in very minimalist shoes reinforce some of these lessons we're learning in the gym or help us reinforce good running form or or just get us in touch with our bodies? I think it's pretty cliche to mention that how much sensitivity there is in the bottom of the foot. You know, somebody who's memorized, they could talk about millions of nerve endings or something like that, but like feeling the ground is an underrated thing to, to work on. And I don't mean in the sense of like, oh, gripping the ground with your toes while you're squatting or something like that. I mean, just feeling the ground, just letting your foot roll over uneven terrain, feeling all the things that your foot can do. You know, that like short foot drill is often revolutionary for people. This idea of just having your foot flat on the ground and then contracting to pop up the arch. There's no rotational motion. It's not pronation and supination. It's, a, it's essentially the same thing as just making a fist. But even that, just the idea of like acknowledging that there's a muscle there to be contracted could be an enormous first step for somebody. And you want to do all that stuff barefoot, just your just your foot and the ground and nothing else. And the, the more lumpy the ground is, the better. And shoes can do amazing things. They can protect our feet. They can assist with energy return. They can provide cushioning to let you run more mileage. They can do awesome stuff. But there are certain things that any shoe will always get in the way of. Yeah. And I I think one of the things that, that is really important in this topic is just feeling how your foot is moving, you know, and just understanding how to lengthen your foot and and sensing the pressure that your midfoot is experiencing and, and how relaxed your foot is in different positions. Can you speak a little bit to the proprioception top aspect to all this? Because I feel like on the one hand, 
it's wildly important. You know, we're talking about feeling with your foot, but on the other hand, I feel like we have never been more disconnected from our feet than we are today in 2023. Yeah, I think you could say that again about movement just in general. Um, some of the people I've paid attention to talk at length about how our tissue capacity is use it or lose it, right? You know, strength and the, the durability of our tissues and the very structure of our tissue is use it or lose it. There's a really important uh, concept to just the world that is uh, the idea of entropy. Entropy is this kind of tendency for matter to uh, move towards chaos and disorganization, right? So the way I think of being alive is to be able to, I guess this is a tangent, but being alive is being able to use energy, harness energy to maintain your structure and hold that together. We can't do it forever, right? A tree's alive, it's doing that. We're alive, we're doing that. A rock isn't. It's just subject to erosion over time. It's not holding itself together at all. Um, so it's subject to entropy immediately. Um, our bodies don't have unlimited resources to combat entropy, right? So where we spend building material and energy currency to maintain our structure, that's only going to happen where our body has been convinced it's worth the resources. And the signal to convince your body it's worth the resources are the forces that your tissue experiences on a day-to-day -day basis. So it is your the head of your femur moving everywhere within the acetabulum of your hip that maintains the joint capsule and the ability to visit everywhere within the acetabulum of your hip. You don't do that for a decade where you spend a, a year in bed or something like that. And you can imagine a joint capsule that's essentially like shrink wrapped, right? You start to have a workspace restriction. That's got nothing to do with flexibility or strength. It's just, there's less movement potential, less space to move, right? So if you're at a very basic level, moving your joints everywhere that they should go really often is like brushing and flossing your teeth. It's just this basic movement hygiene that helps kind of maintain that structure. And along with that, all those mechanoreceptors, all the sensory apparatus that communicate about joint position and tension to your brain that have all sorts of names, those are use it or lose it too. You can make more mechanoreceptors, you can make yours more sensitive. And the end result is what I describe to athletes as building a map, right? Building a nervous system that has a very, very detailed map of your brain where you can move, where you can't, what tissue is available to help create that movement and what's not, and what the limits of that are. And um, in my mind, there are very few things that could be responsible for efficiency besides that, right? It's this thing that gets honed by running tons of mileage or doing things over and over again. But there's this mistaken idea, I think, that doing things over and over again gets you better at doing it exactly the same way but I think it's the variety. I think it's variety that gives your body this ability. I don't know the name of the study, but it's been kind of talked about to me before about a study that looked at EMG activity in golfers and how really good golfers, their sequence of muscle activation and what muscles were involved for the swing was different every time. Whereas a poor golfer was more or less the same every time. So a good golfer has a million ways to get the same result. Whereas me, who's I've only golfed 18 holes in my life, I would swing the same way every time and get wildly different results. Right. So if I can't, I can't vouch for that study, but if that anecdote 
is true, it's a good sort of a example of how we can think about like variety being a way to hone in on really good, efficient run technique rather than the assumption that you're trying to constrain and prune your joint motion to be the exact same thing every time. I actually have a, another story about that if we got time. Yeah, let's. I, I welcome tangents here on the podcast. I, I was thinking about adding my own, but let's hear sure. the, other, the other tangent here. Before we get to yours, just briefly, I had an athlete ask me about like just the basic question of whether a restricted ankle would be good for their running performance because it would make the ankle complex stiffer, right? And uh, constrain that, that movement. And the answer in the short term is probably yes, right? A stiffer foot and ankle is going to mean, you know, a little bit less options for movement, a little bit less sloppiness and a little bit quicker ground contact time. So in the moment it might be good, but what they were really asking me without really phrasing it that way was, would it be better for my running if my ankle wasn't an ankle anymore? It was a hoof. Right. And yeah. And if, if that's the answer, then no, it, that, that would be a long-term death for the tissue, a death sentence for, for the health of the tissue over time. So it's like, you want the ability to have a ankle and foot that can move all over the place. And you want the ability to summon the stiffness when it's appropriate. If it's stiff just by result of not moving and just its structure changing over time, that's probably not so good. Yeah. Stiffness is one of the favorite words among track coaches. We love stiff athletes, but that's not really the stiffness that's used in, you know, everyday language. It's not the colloquial idea of stiffness. Yeah. Not like stuck stiffness. Exactly. It's, it's, you can hold a lot of muscle tension in your muscles and release it as free energy. Like we were talking earlier. Um, and I love this idea of variety being almost this prerequisite to accomplishing whatever physical task you're trying to do. Um, you know, like that, that interesting study with the golfers, you know, it makes me think a lot about racing strategy and how someone who's really good at racing, which I believe is a skill is going to be able to thrive under a lot of different scenarios. If people go out too fast, they're going to know how to respond. If the pack goes out really slow, they're going to know how to respond. If the pack goes out right on pace and they have to counteract with surges or in other words, implement a race strategy that they might not have been planning for, they still have the tools to thrive under any of those scenarios. And so we can look at race strategy, you know, we could look at just general training for runners and how I think variety is so critical for staying healthy in the long term and also just reaching your performance potential. Um, you know, you can imagine if you're not experiencing any variety with your training, let's say you're doing all 120 beat per minute, low heart rate training, we're missing something in the training if that's all we're doing. And I love how we can apply that same idea to even like how you pronate, even about your tissue function and whether or not you're building a more capable body for the demands of running, we need variety everywhere. And that's probably one of the few good principles that we can apply to almost every area of our training. Yeah. Something I think about constantly is this idea of making sure you're adapting to your training rather than what could be termed accommodating to your training. So in training, there's this idea of the law of accommodation, which would be um, a tendency for the same stimulus to be less stimulating the more often it's encountered, right? 
we do 10 sets of 10 back squats or 12 400s and it's really hard the first time and then the second time it's not so hard it doesn't get you a sore and the third time it's not so hard because you are uh you're either adapting to it or you're accommodating to it uh, accommodating might be the way i think of it is like a trade like paying for your fitness on credit rather than cash and cash would be more desirable where one of the ways your hip or your ankle at least conceptually could adapt to running is just getting worse at everything that isn't running if running doesn't involve a lot of hip ad- abduction then let's just get rid of the ability to do the side splits and constrain the structure of the hip over time so that I only have the ranges of motion that I need for running, walking, sitting, and lying down. That sounds a lot like me when I was a senior in high school, right? And I just like couldn't squat, didn't have hips to speak of, right? But it works. The end result, the bottom line of your run performance and your times will improve. But you don't realize that in order to do that, in order to make those changes, in order to make those accommodations, you're trading and you're draining the very reservoir that makes you adaptable in the first place. And when that reservoir runs dry, that's when injuries happen. That's when burnout happens. Just conceptually, we're not talking about anything in particular. That's what the way I think of it. So we want to have this system. For me in the gym, I think of it, the system of training the tissue running in the background to keep you adaptable and make sure that you're not making those trades and paying on credit. So at the end of a training cycle, I want an athlete's hip function to be exactly the same, even though they got faster rather than they got faster and their hips got shittier. I like that. I like that because I think runners often sacrifice other aspects of their fitness as soon as the running gets difficult. And I'm sure you've heard this with marathoners who say, oh, I just stopped strength training when my volume got really high, or I stopped doing all the little things in my training that I had been doing in the off season, but I just didn't have time to when I was doing all these very specific marathon workouts and my mileage was really high. I think that's almost the more important time to do it because you're maintaining that capacity while you're also being very specific uh, because you need both. Yeah. I would tell that person that they stopped actually training. You know what I mean? They stopped like, if I can just plug myself real quick, my project is called Higher Ground Athletics. And the ethos of that is getting up to a high enough vantage point that we can see the entire landscape of training, including the dead ends that we might run into or shortcuts that we might find and how things are connected in ways that we don't understand. And that requires training everything that is relevant and trainable and, uh, missing relative to the demands of performance. So if if you slowly stop doing everything that isn't running, you're just not training anymore. You're not s- interacting with all the variables that you need to bring to, with you to the start line, which is a shame. And I think it's a it's a communication, it's a knowledge issue among coaches and it's a communication issue among coaches first and foremost. Yeah, and I I really love this this whole concept of of treating the body like you know, a more holistic biological system that requires variety and uh, a, a new way of thinking about it because we can't only run because then we're just not, we're, we're not going to be the best runners that we can be. We're going to be prone to injury. Uh, so Keith, I've really enjoyed this conversation. You know, I thought we were going to focus exclusively on pronation, but we talked obviously about a lot more um, to bring it back to pronation just a little bit and just how the foot is supposed to move. Um, you know, some of the things I've learned today are number one, 
pronation is normal, supination is normal, and we, instead of focusing on one or the other or doing one more than the other, we really just want to ensure that our foot can go through this entire range of motion. And the pronation, supination is almost like one yin to the other yang. They're both required. And uh, working in some of the uh, uh, weighted ranges of motion with some extra weight can be a really helpful way of improving our strength in those uh, in those positions. Did I get that right? And is there anything you'd like to add? Is there anything that maybe we missed talking about this issue? I think that's all true. I think it's really helpful to, you know, we get into this mess by thinking about things being correct. And, you know, like even, even you said it a few times and I can't fault anybody because it's just so much part of our lexicon, but we really got to move away from this idea of moving correctly and good movement patterns, poor movement patterns. Pattern should be the dirty word in my opinion, right? Patterned is the last thing you want to be as an athlete where you have this one way that you do things just because you've been told or think it might be correct. You want options, right? So like pronation and supination is just one of those movement options that you you have to have. And it's, it's super important. Otherwise you're going to make trades elsewhere in your body. And, you know, people use that compensation word all the time. Compensations happen when you don't have the options that are required to fulfill whatever your movement strategy is. And running is just a strategy, right? Running is like this, um, innate thing that our species has figured out up upright running on two legs has been kind of a, the most efficient way to move us forward and the fastest way to move us forward through space. But that's the thing. That's all the reptile part of your brain cares about is just moving through space as quickly as possible. And you organize yourself that way by running. If, if I don't, didn't have arms, I'd figure out a way to still run. If my, one of my knees was stuck straight, I'd figure out a way to still run. And there's no, room for the grammar of correct or anything like that. I get really caught up in this idea of movement quality and have to think about what does movement quality even mean? And what I come down to over and over again is efficiency, right? The the most quality movement, the best movement quality is going to be that which uses the least energy to achieve whatever the task is. So that's a good like North star in my head. And pronation and supination is for sure a part of the most efficient way to run for, for just about anybody. Yeah. And I might be the rare podcast host that enjoys being called out a little bit on his own show. <laughs> um, I think with the volume of communication I do about running, I can fall into some sloppy language habits. Um, and, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, th- there is no correct way to move. You know, I think one of the things I've learned about people, about humans, is that we're all so different while at the same time being so similar, more similar than different. But those unique differences that we have mean that there's a lot of different ways that we can move. And there's certainly some fundamentals that we should all try to get right. But like you said, there is no correct way to move. We want options. And if you'll allow me one more tangent before we wrap today, I I just cannot help but think back to running cross country, running cross country in spikes is an exercise in finding options on how to navigate technical terrain in very little shoe where you're required to move in a lot of different ways. And I was just kept thinking back to the demands of a cross country race or even a trail race maybe. 
um, because that requires you to run in a way that's very different than if you were running on a track or the road on this very uniform surface with very predictable turns and there's no there's very little elevation changes. Cross country to me is like this full body physical sport that requires more of you as a runner than some other types of running events. And so if anyone has the option to participate in a cross country race, I think it's just a great experience. And, you know, as, as a nice little side note, it's also going to challenge your body in a lot of the ways that we discussed here today and require more of it. So I just wanted to mention that because I love cross country. And if yeah, I can ever talk cross country up, I, I will do it. <laughs> uh, it's important to remember that like our biology is very, very old. Our DNA is very old and running off of paved terrain is, you could say it's more natural. It's, it's what our biology understands. It's more, uh, one could say correct, right? It's the paved road and the track, the uniform surface that are alien and not understood and and tricky and uh, probably the source of a lot of a lot of issues for people like think about the the variety of movement that's built in to just all those uh micro differences and steps when you're running on on trails there's a reason that so many people catch on to the idea of like oh this is actually really good to make you more durable to get on trails like once a week or something like that we tried to get off road for any run that wasn't a workout when, when I was training in a big group in the college atmosphere, because, you know, the roads, you know, not only they just made you feel a little bit more beat up, but there was this intuitive understanding of it's harder to run fast on more technical ground. So in a way it's almost just going to like keep you honest on an easy distance run. And I think it builds a lot of that strength in different movement patterns. You have to navigate that terrain. And I know we're getting way off topic here, but, um, you know, I, I just love it as a tool to accomplish a lot of the things that, that we want to accomplish as runners. It's fun. I, like, yeah, and I, that's the truth. I'll too. take trails over the road any day, personally. No, hundred <laughs> percent. All right, Keith, this was really interesting. Um, so much more than pronation and supination and movement patterns of the foot. Uh, I, I think folks got a really holistic look at some of the issues around foot patterns. And, and I think that's going to be really helpful. Uh, you've mentioned higher ground athletics, your coaching business, uh, where can folks connect with you on the internet or in person? Uh, yeah, higher ground athletics with underscores between the words, uh, on Instagram and highergroundathletics.com. If you want to engage with any of the concepts that I talk about, I, you know, I've got a fraught relationship with social media. Cause I think when you use social media to represent your business and your work, sometimes the insensitive in incentives can get a little bit away from people. So I do my best to just talk about things that are interesting and prove that I exist and prove that I think deeply about the work that I do. And that's my hope that if you take a look there, you'll that's all you'll find. I'm not trying to convert anyone to a customer or anything like that. But if you want to train with me, there's options to message me about that as well. Yeah. Well, your Instagram account, like I've told you privately is a treasure trove of just fascinating ways of thinking about strength and conditioning and running. So I'll include a link to that in your website, in the show notes on strength running. So folks can check that out. But Keith really appreciate your insights and your expertise today. Sure. Thank you very much. And that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to connect with Keith, you can visit highergroundathletics.com or you can find him on Instagram at higher underscore endurance 
underscore athletics. If you're a fan of my work here on the podcast, please consider leaving a review for the show. You can share it with your running friends or club or invest in a training program at strengthrunning.com. You can also support the show by supporting our sponsors. Their links and discount codes are going to save you some hard-earned cash, and they will also help support the Strength Running Podcast. First, I challenge you to optimize your recovery and get the best sleep of your life with Lagoon. They make the most comfortable pillow I've ever used, and really, that's no hyperbole. I'm pleasantly surprised every night I lie down because this pillow just seems perfect for me. I took their sleep quiz to find the right pillow for my body size and sleeping position at lagoonsleep.com slash strengthrunning. It only takes two minutes, and you're going to find out the type of pillow that will work best for you. I'm using their Fox pillow, and I absolutely love it. A big reason why is because it's adjustable. The pillow comes with extra fill, so you can adjust it to your unique needs. Last week, I lied down in bed, and I couldn't get comfortable. I was wondering what was going on. And because I only have one Lagoon pillow, I realized I was using the other one. And once I made the switch, I quickly fell asleep. Lagoon really does make a big difference. And we all know how important sleep is. It's the best recovery tool that every runner has at our disposal. It's better than compression, better than ice, heat, massage, or really anything else that you can think of. Sleep is when the magic happens and your sleep quality matters. I just finished reading Peter Atiyah's book, Outlive, The Science and Art of Longevity. And there's a whole section on sleep as a longevity tool and also as a way to reduce the risk of neurodegenerative diseases. So not only is it so critical for our athletic performances, but it's so important for our health as we get older. Suffice it to say, I'm taking sleep a lot more seriously and Lagoon is making that easier for me. And US Olympic trials qualifier, Caitlin Keene, also started using a Lagoon pillow and saw her deep sleep increase by 52 minutes. So I'm excited to reap the rewards of better sleep compounded night after night. You can get 15% off your pillow at lagoonsleep.com slash strengthrunning with code strengthrunning at checkout. Take their two-minute sleep quiz, find the right pillow for you, and then adjust it to perfection. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash strengthrunning and use code strengthrunning to save 15% today. Next, hook yourself up with some free electrolytes. You're going to love Element. Our sponsor Element is offering a free gift with your purchase at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. And this does not have to be your first purchase. You're gonna get a sample pack with every flavor that they offer, so you can try them all before deciding what you like best. Now, if you're not familiar, Element is my favorite way to hydrate. They make electrolytes for athletes and low-carb folks with no sugar, artificial ingredients, or colors. And I'm now in the habit of just bringing boxes of Element to group runs around Denver and Boulder and just giving them away. Everyone loves this stuff. Now, it can also be a really helpful way to prevent dehydration when you're running long or if you're doing a very challenging workout. If you sometimes feel overly tired or you get headaches, cramps, or sleeplessness, after long runs or hard workouts, you might have an electrolyte imbalance or a deficiency. Boost your performance and your recovery, especially in the heat, with Element. They're the exclusive hydration partner to Team USA Weightlifting, and quite a few professional baseball, hockey, and basketball teams are on regular subscriptions. Plus, 
Element is my go-to morning beverage if I've frequented one of Denver's many breweries the night before, and I want my morning to feel a little smoother. Check them out at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. You'll get your free sample pack with whatever purchase you decide, and then you can get on the business of getting your hydration optimized for this upcoming season. Finally, get yourself 15% off your first purchase at prevenex.com with code JASON15. Prevenex is a unique supplement company that holds itself to standards that the rest of the industry does not. I know you've heard me talk about Joint Health Plus from Prevenex and how it's directly impacted the health of so many runners. Their CEO, David, keeps forwarding me all these amazing testimonials. Um, And I want to share some because your results are just incredible. Uh, First, a listener named Kim wrote in, my ankle and knee pain was completely gone in a week. Amazing. Simple to the point. I love it. Then there's Anna who wrote, I thought I was on the verge of having to give up running due to severe hip pain and luckily discovered Prevenex. Complete game changer for me. Now, Joint Health Plus is so powerful because the main active ingredient that's used is clinically proven to reduce joint pain, reduce joint stiffness, and improve joint flexibility in only 7 to 10 days. That's why many of these testimonials feature folks who see legitimate progress in only about a week. It's also clinically proven, and not just tested, but actually proven in double-blinded, placebo-controlled studies to protect joint cartilage from breaking down during exercise. And if you don't currently have any joint pain, my personal favorite products are their meal replacement shake that I love after hard runs called Nurify, plus their immune support and multivitamin. I love feeling like I'm firing on all cylinders and Prevenex helps me do just that. Get 15% off your first Prevenex purchase by using code JASON15 at checkout. Go to Prevenex.com, that's P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com And I'll note one last thing. Prevenex offers a 30-day money-back guarantee where if you don't feel the benefits on their product, you get your money back, no questions asked. Use code JASON15 at Prevenex.com today. All right, that's our show, my friends. If I can ever be of service to you, don't ever hesitate to reach out. Until next time. 